I'm just glad to be back as much as we were thankful for what we had. I was just really excited to get back to be with people and to watch, see faces and to be able to talk and all that stuff. And I know we're kind of limited a little bit, but I think it's just so great to have, uh, you know, real people that you're interacting with as your church family and that you get to know and get to help and receive help from it and all of that. <clears throat> so I'm all thankful for that. Um, I said happy Mother's Day, and I, I mean that for the mothers, but I also mean it for all of us, no matter who we are, because if it weren't for mothers, we'd be so much less happy, wouldn't we? I mean, if not for mothers, who presents that atmosphere in the home? Who does so much work? Who, who spends so much time with the children? You know, most of us <clears throat> are aware that women and mothers have not always and still in many places do not get the appreciation they deserve. When you think of some societies, both ancient and modern, uh, women were treated and are treated in some places as less important, as not nearly as capable as men or as smart. In some places, you know, they're not allowed to vote. Some nations have just started letting women vote at this time, uh, not allowed to drive. Um, their testimonies aren't as valuable in court if they're allowed to, to testify in court at all. Uh, in some societies, the men can just freely declare a divorce, and women have no legal right. <clears throat> but you know, there's a, a very interesting passage of Scripture in the Old Testament that comes from a time when women had less rights, were viewed as lower class in a sense, less important. But in this passage, and I'm going to be kind of using a, a, a sports analogy, in this passage where women were seen as lower class, it is the women who achieved the victory. In fact, it is the women who completely hit it out of the park against a much more powerful man's team. And this passage also has a lot to do with motherhood. So in this passage, we have the strength of women showing up, both mothers and non-mothers. And the person they are competing against keep to the sports analogy, the person they are competing against is this powerful king. And through these incredible women, God does a work that will affect all of history and even all of eternity. And so <clears throat> we're going to be looking at some verses in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Our story takes place in the land of ancient Egypt, we're 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. And you remember how Joseph was sold into slavery and became a very strong leader in Egypt through his you know, faithfulness to God, through his servanthood. He really climbed the ladder 
and he became second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joseph was admired, and he brought his family down. They came down as about 70, 75 people from the land of Canaan during that drought. And Joseph was seen as, you know, the most important person in Egypt, basically, after Pharaoh. But what we're talking about here, 1,500 years before Christ, is 200 years past Joseph's big time there where he was looked up to so much. And his fame and his positive influence is a thing of the way past. And over those 200 years, the Hebrew people that came down, Joseph's family that came down, <clears throat> over those 200 years, they multiplied greatly. And so greatly that the Egyptians, especially Pharaoh, the Pharaoh at the time, was worried that these Hebrews might even turn against them, either become so powerful and so big, or that if another nation came in and tried to uh, you know, fight them and defeat them, that the Israelites might join that other nation. So Pharaoh starts to work on slowing down this Hebrew population growth. And he subjects these foreigners, these Israelite foreigners, to forced labor. And he's trying to just really demoralize them and, you know, bring them down with harsh slave labor. But as he does that, the babies keep coming. And they keep coming, and they keep coming. And the more Pharaoh oppresses them, the more babies are born. So Pharaoh summons these midwives, and many of you know this story, but Pharaoh summons these midwives those who are delivering the Hebrew babies, they're Hebrew midwives, and he commands them that whenever a Hebrew baby boy is born, that they kill it and only allow the girls to live. But it says that the Hebrew midwives, they revered God so much that they just could not kill those baby boys. And so the population just keeps increasing. And the king calls in these midwives, <clears throat> these Hebrew midwives, and he asks them, why are you allowing these baby boys to live? And now I want to read three verses here in Exodus chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And here is the midwives' answer to Pharaoh. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. <clears throat> now that's a very familiar story to most of us here, but I want to look at it for a minute. You know, we've been talking about Egyptian rule. We've been talking about Israelite slavery. We've been talking about this Israelite baby boom. Pharaoh's fears over the Israelite baby boom. And those are all the human elements that we're talking about <clears throat> at this time. But what is God doing at this time? 
What is the divine element? Well, at this very time, God is growing a nation, isn't he? He's produce, producing a huge nation. He's preparing to eventually free his people from Egyptian slavery. All that is in the works, and God is, is overseeing that. And he's preparing to eventually lead them to a promised land, a land over there in Canaan, you know, where Israel is now, <clears throat> that area. And the reason he's leading them over to that land was to give them a home and to get rid of those people who were there. Many tribes that were there that had become so degraded, they, well, they had become uh, so sinful, and, and they had just, you know, trashed out morally God's land or what God gave them many years before. It's kind of like if you owned houses and you rented them out and some group of people were living in one house and just trashing it. You would, you would kick them out. That's what God was doing to these people, and he was, used, he was developing this nation in order to do that, to take them there, and of course, mo so much more. But who have been God's people so far, his key people to do this so far in our story? It's the Hebrew women birthing all those babies, isn't it? During a time of harsh treatment upon their families. These Hebrew women who just keep having more and more babies at a time when many people wouldn't. And you know, it's difficult enough to bear babies and raise a family just in good times. But then you have these husbands leaving home early every morning going out to this harsh, ruthless work. The Bible calls it ruthless. You know, and going through that time when they're being treated as lowly, lowly slaves. But yet these young mothers, by God's grace, continue to give birth, take care of their babies, and continue to raise their children. So we have these brave young mothers up against this powerful Pharaoh, we have the powerless people up against the powerful Pharaoh. <clears throat> Any other key people? Well, how about the Hebrew midwives? Out of their deep love and respect for God, they risk their very lives by not killing the Hebrew baby boys. And God rewards them, it says, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So if we were to, uh, sticking with the sports analogy, keeping, if we were keeping score, it would seem to be women two, Pharaoh zero. Now, would you ever have thought young mothers having babies and midwives delivering these babies could beat a powerful Egyptian king and his edict. Well, what it is, it's a picture of human faithfulness and God's power mixed, put together. But you know, Pharaoh is not defeated yet. He's going to bear down. And I want you to see the next verse here, 
verse 22, the last verse of chapter 1 of Exodus, says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. <clears throat> so Pharaoh is saying, if the Hebrew midwives won't follow my orders, I'll enlist the whole nation. He's now determined to stop this out-of-control Hebrew birth explosion. And now we have a setting for the key part of this narrative. Every Hebrew baby boy has a death sentence on his head. Now the Bible doesn't say here how many were killed. You know, the Israelites, when they moved down, they were they had a kind of a section of their own of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And so maybe, you know, it wasn't just this constant grabbing babies. I don't know. It doesn't really say. But you can imagine if he gives the, he gives the whole nation orders, whenever they see a Hebrew baby boy, it's to be killed or probably, you know, turned in or told on or whatever. Just think of that harsh oppressive atmosphere that must have been over the land because all these baby boys or whoever was born as a baby boy had a death sentence on their head. Everyone, according to Pharaoh, was to watch out for these baby boys. And in this dramatic setting, this harsh, oppressive setting, comes an even greater victory for the women's side. I want you to follow along as I read the first four verses of chapter 2. <clears throat> now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch that would make it... Uh, waterproof. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So we have this married couple, this uh, both from the tribe of Levi, and that was the tribe that would be set aside as the priestly tribe, where the priests would come from and the servants of the tabernacle and the temple. The wife gives birth to this very special child. You know, in the New Testament, there are two references made to this child. And one said it was, was not an ordinary child. And I'm guessing he was probably extra good-looking, extra healthy, maybe had stunning looks. You know, you could just tell by looking at him, this child was special. But his mother hid him for three months... And when she couldn't keep him hidden any longer, she got a basket, coated it with tar and pitch, placed it along the banks of the Nile River. Now, <clears throat> you can imagine this mother, as she decided where she was going to put this basket, she probably placed it in a place where she figured somebody would see it, right? I mean, no use putting it in a place where it wouldn't be seen. <clears throat> And she probably even knew who came down and used that part of the river because, 
You know, it was royalty who came down and used that part of the river. We always kind of know what's going on with royalty, don't we? And then it says his sister was standing at a distance and, and just waited and watched. Now, at this point, I see another woman hero coming in to the, to the picture. You know, standing against this powerful Egyptian king. She gives birth to a baby that, according to Pharaoh's decree, is supposed to be killed. She decides not to kill the baby, maybe risking her life. She has to be on the constant lookout in order to keep him alive. Like I said, Israel had kind of like their own area, so maybe it wasn't just like everybody watching them all the time, but who knows if a neighbor would tell on them because they were scared they would get in trouble if they didn't. I mean, who knows how uh, strong that pressure was. <clears throat> but then this mother has to give up this special baby. She hid him for three months, and now she has to give up this baby, and as far as she knows, this is forever. At three months, she's putting him in a basket, and he's gone. No longer belongs to the family. And she's doing this in hopes of saving his life. And what were the odds that his life would be spared if he was found? Wow. Um, I, th I, I imagine she thought, well, <clears throat> maybe the odds weren't real, real big, real large here, but more than if somebody found him in our home. And so I see this as this tremendous act of bravery for this mother. And I'm guessing that as she placed this basket, this baby in the basket, and placed this basket by the Nile River, in her mind she was placing him in the hands of God. Lord, it's yours. I'm not touching him anymore. So we have, in the story, we have the Hebrew mothers bearing and raising their children, building a nation under duress. We have the midwives bravely delivering Hebrew baby boys when the edict said they were supposed to kill them. And now this Levite woman taking this big risk of keeping her baby boy and then later bravely giving him up to give him a chance to live. I see heroism here. I see the powerless st standing with God against the powerful. And I just think of the mental torture of having to leave that basket by the side of the river. And so at this point, I think we might say that it's women three and Pharaoh nothing. The powerful team hasn't scored yet. But now we're going to see some more heroes enter the story. Follow along as I read 5 through 9. <clears throat> then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. 
This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. <clears throat> Pharaoh's own daughter, the one who gave the edict to kill the baby boys, she's the one that sees the basket, has her servant bring it to her. She sees it's a Hebrew baby. She feels sorry for it because it's crying. Then up runs the baby's sister, who stayed there to watch to see what would happen, and bravely asks Pharaoh's daughter, you want me to find somebody to nurse the baby? To which Pharaoh's daughter agrees, and then ends up saying that she will pay this mother if she will go ahead and nurse him for her. So actually, I, I see here two more heroes, women heroes, against the powerful Pharaoh. The two daughters, Pharaoh's daughter and the woman who had the baby's daughter. <clears throat> Pharaoh's daughter was risking going against her father's decree, his edict, and this baby's sister hid herself and then stepped out to take on a key part by asking Pharaoh's daughter, hey, you want me to go find a woman to nurse this baby for you? That's a brave move for a little girl, don't you think? All of these women taking their risks in opposition to Pharaoh's edict his edict to kill every Hebrew baby boy. And each woman filling her own role. And of course, we see that God is working his plan alongside the, the brave actions of these women. And then our story ends with maybe the bravest move of all, the bravest act of all. <clears throat> Verse 10. When the child grew older, she took, him into Pharaoh, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Uh, the, the name Moses is similar to a word in the Hebrew, or in, in, in Egypt, in the Egyptian, as, that says draw out. So she kind of named the baby uh, according to the circumstance. Moses' mother hands him over forever to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You know, builds a little boat for him, little basket. How hard would that have been? You know, maybe the most difficult act of bravery in the whole story. And of course, we know that this baby, who is now a child, <clears throat> as she's turning him back over to, to the Pharaoh's daughter, we know he becomes one of the greatest heroes of Israel. God's plans for this baby were enormous. 
I mean, you couldn't even measure these plans he had for this baby. And now what I'd like to do is just to put this whole thing in perspective as much as I can. You know, there is no doubt as we look through this story that God was heavily involved. He was involved shaping history. We recognize God's part. <clears throat> he was developing this nation and growing it to be a gigantic nation for which he had big, big future plans. And he was overseeing all the events and using just the right people in just the right place in just the right time. And of course, he had done things before that for this to happen, all of this to happen with uh, Jacob's family. And God was even using certain people's selfish and evil intentions to accomplish his good plans, wasn't he? There were selfish, evil intentions there. And then there were good intentions, heroic acts of bravery and faith. And he was taking it all together to fulfill his overall plan to build a nation from which eventually the Messiah would come. So we don't see this amazing story as something that just came out of nowhere and could be just uh, summed up as the luck of the draw. But yet, even though we see God's hand in this very clearly, human activity and human choices and fears and faith and good and evil attentions also played big parts in this. These women we've mentioned, the mothers that were giving birth, raising children under harsh conditions, the midwives who refused to kill these baby boys. And you know, <clears throat> in our society, a lot of people think it's more brave to kill a baby than to save it. But this passage shows what the truth is. And then you have Moses' mother choosing to hide him in order to keep him alive, another act of bravery. Then choosing to place him in a basket so he could hopefully be found and hopefully have his life spared. Then you have Pharaoh's daughter choosing to rescue his life instead of handing him over to be killed, like her father was telling everybody to. You have Moses' sister hiding and waiting so she could play her part and offering to help Pharaoh's daughter by finding a person, uh, a mother to, to nurse the baby. That's a brave move. And then Moses' mother giving him up forever, you know, knowing that she had to do that, but also hoping he would be saved. All of those acts being brave acts by brave women resisting or standing against Pharaoh's edict. All of those acts were against the mighty Pharaoh's edict. A lot of human involvement, a lot of human decisions. <clears throat> the powerless women against the powerful Egyptian king. And do you know what else it was? It was the brave acts of certain women in the roles that they had already held. 
the roles or positions to which they had been called in which they were already living. And what I'm saying is they didn't have to wait until they achieved some powerful position you know, in their society in order to score a victory. <clears throat> Even over a powerful ruler that nobody could, you know, go against his rule. As mothers, as midwives, as a big sister, as a loving mother of a special child, and even the daughter of a king who had ordered the death sentence. See, I believe that we can be heroes in whatever roles or positions we find ourselves in if we trust in God and follow him. Powerless women defeat the powerful king. Headline of the day, with God's help. It's walking by faith. And, you know, we can do it from whatever role or position we find ourselves in. But, you know, I also believe <clears throat> in this instance that God used special strengths of these women, of, of women. The most obvious one is the birthing of children, right? But how about endurance, raising these children in a time of duress? Perseverance. How about a woman's self-sacrificing love for her children and family? How about a woman's special capacity for compassion and recognizing needs? God used women in that situation when he was going to overturn the edict of Pharaoh, and the women were the ones most able to do that. And of course, I'm not saying that's their only strengths. Women are strong in many areas, as we see by many achievements today. <clears throat> but you know, Pharaoh would have had Moses killed as a baby, right? If everything had gone the way it was supposed to, Pharaoh would have killed Moses. He would have stopped Israel from becoming a big nation. He was by far the most powerful person in this whole story. But the women of our passage outplayed him. And not by some strategy or genius plan, but just by doing brave womanly things. By walking in faith, by trusting God, by doing what they knew was the right thing to do. So in their contest, under their circumstances, within their context, <clears throat> in their somewhat lowly position in society, they get the victory. They beat Pharaoh against all odds. And ultimately, God leads them out of Egypt to the promised land by this special baby boy who leads them for 40 years and puts them right at the door of the promised land and, and grows them up as a nation under the leadership of this Hebrew baby and under the leadership of God. And it all goes back to the faith 
and bravery of his mother and some other women who were involved. Let's pray.